Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Top Docs Radio. Brought to you by Hyperbaric Physicians of Georgia, a comprehensive wound resolution and UHMS accredited hyperbaric medicine practice with four offices to serve you. Find us on the web at www.hbomdga.com. Facebook and Twitter at HBOMDGA. Hey, what's up, everyone? It's CW. Thanks for checking out this week's Top Docs Radio Show. On this episode, we continued our monthly series with Medical Association of Georgia, and we focused our discussion on telehealth and telemedicine. Legal expert on the topics of healthcare, life sciences, and healthcare technology, Sydney Welch of Kilpatrick, Townsend, and Stockton, joined me in the studio to talk about this subject, sharing some impressive statistics about the growth of this medium through which healthcare is now being delivered using technology on mobile devices, telephony, videography, and PCs, basically allowing patients who don't have nearby access to particular physician specialists, or just in the case of episodic non-acute type emergencies, might be able to go face-to-face using these types of devices to confer with a physician to determine whether they need just a simple prescription or perhaps they need to seek more acute care at a hospital or other type of healthcare delivery environment. The emergence and rapid growth of telehealth and telemedicine as a means of delivering patients patient care has really changed the landscape with regards to legal concerns, licensing and compliance, regulations. We're all trying to catch up with this fast growing space in the healthcare delivery system. Coming up, Sydney's going to talk about some of the statistics around the growth of telehealth and telemedicine. Check it out. So when you look statistically at it, there is this explosion of telemedicine or telehealth. You talk about the global market for telemedicine and telehealth services. We're looking at a growth from from 11.6 billion in 2011 up to a projection of 27.3 billion in 2016. So it's huge and it's not just in the United States, it's worldwide. We all remember the Nighthawk radiology things and the staffing components from early on. But when you get this growth in telehealth services, you've got the revenue that goes with it from 4.5 billion that's projected in 2018 up from just millions, 440 million in 2013. So it's just going to continue to grow exponentially. And with that revenue growth, obviously, is attributable to actually patients and providers using it. Stick around. We got the full interview with Sydney Welch coming up next. And thanks for joining us today on the Top Docs Radio Show. It's C.W. Hall, your host here on the program, and I'm pleased to be continuing our monthly series with the Medical Association of Georgia. We've been doing this series now for, gosh, around a year or so, maybe a little longer, having them join us on a monthly basis to talk about topics that are important to the patients and the providers of healthcare here in the state of Georgia and learning about how they've been able to advocate on behalf of those providers and then ultimately to the benefit of the patients and their outcomes, trying to deal with things like narrow networks from insurance providers' perspective, educating physicians and patients about those to a host of different topics like ICD-10 that just went into effect here in this last month, probably to the shock and trauma of many around there that weren't quite prepared for that one. But today we're going to be talking about telemedicine and how it is changing the way that healthcare is delivered around the state of Georgia. I'm joined in the studio by Sydney Welch. She's an attorney here in the area that has a focus on healthcare technology and, and healthcare in general with Kilpatrick Townsend and Stockton. Sydney, I appreciate you taking some time to discuss the topic of telemedicine and how it's changing what we're doing here in healthcare. 
Thanks, CW. I think we have a lot easier task than talking about ICD-10. So, yeah, (laughs) I could feel the tension building both in our own practice. I'm part of a medical practice outside of uh, the studio here. So knowing the anticipation, if you want to call it, maybe it's angst is probably a better word for it. But but yeah, this one's an easy one. And it's actually kind of cool. It's one that seems like it's changing exponentially now. I was reading an article from the Mag Journal not too long ago that talked about how in 2006, I guess there were eight encounters through telemedicine. And then by 2012 is like 75,000. So it's rapidly growing in terms of patients accessing a variety of different specialties. And as I read the article, I didn't realize the extent to which it has begun to pervade through a host of different specialties. Over the course of the of this show and then another one that I do that's focused on healthcare called Health Connect South Radio, we've had a chance. I mentioned MedZed as we were getting ready to go on the air today. So I've had a chance to meet a couple of companies that are beginning to work in the space, but I didn't realize until I was reading that article just how widely it has spread throughout different providers, different specialties, and how it's being used in our state. That's right. And I think it's only going to continue to expand. Of course, telemedicine and telehealth is kind of part of the buzzwords in today's lingo in healthcare, right? It's a, it's a popular thing. And so I think people are always a little bit skeptical. Is it going to stay or is it going to go? But it's one of the fun things that's being done in technology in the healthcare industry to really improve patient care and also to decrease the cost in healthcare. So when you look statistically at it, there is this explosion of telemedicine or telehealth. You talk about the global market for telemedicine and telehealth services. We're looking at a growth from $11.6 billion in 2011 up to a projection of $27.3 billion in 2016. So it's huge. And it's not just in the United States. It's worldwide. We all remember the Nighthawk radiology things and the staffing components from early on. But when you get this growth in telehealth services, you've got the revenue that goes with it from $4.5 billion that's projected in 2018, up from just millions, 440 million in 2013. So it's just going to continue to grow exponentially. And with that revenue growth, obviously, is attributable to actually patients and providers using it. Mm-hmm. And you know, as uh, we were interviewing a company on an, one of the other programs, we were talking, uh, it was a, a telehealth type discussion. And, and they mentioned the fact that when you look at banking as a, as a c- comparison, used to be mobile banking, now it's just banking. And, and it, it seems that telehealth telemedicine is is going to go the same way it's going to it's now that the technology's only improving the 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 access to fast internet for just about everybody now uh, for at least most people it, it seems that it's going to be simpler and simpler and more efficient to deliver this kind of care. So from a semantics perspective, when we hear the words telehealth and telemedicine, can you differentiate that for the listeners to let them know what the difference is when we when we talk about telehealth versus telemedicine? Right. And and it's an important distinction, not only for reimbursement purposes, but also just generally in terms of the lingo and knowing what you're talking about. So telehealth would be the wider universe of any sort of healthcare that's delivered by some sort of remote technology um, and would include things like nursing services, for example, or could include psychology type of services. So anything that relates to health that is not provider specific, whereas telemedicine, of course, would be those medical services delivered by a physician using the technology, Um, whether it's remote patient monitoring would be one example of that. You know, there's a lot of things that's going on right now with ACOs and all those different models of delivery of healthcare. Um, So remote uh, monitoring being an important part part of that. But then also you've got the store and forward type of concepts where images are being taken, for example, whether it's a derm patient that has a rash on their arm that wants to forward it to the dermatologist, 
test or whether it's an x-ray that gets forwarded to somebody else to read and the patient's located someplace else. And then there's also this bucket, um, additionally, of the live encounter. You mentioned ZedMed. You know, that's an example of that where the nurse appears at the patient's home, the patient presents to the physician via the iPad or what have you. The encounter takes place with hands-on and then also via the remote, in addition to some more traditional models like telephone consults, which could be part of this category of telehealth or telemedicine. Yeah, and and I think it's interesting because... I was saying, I said MedZed by, by mistake, ZedMed. Um, their model is one, that, I mean, it, the, the home visit is actually coming back in, in, to some extent, at least in that particular model where it may not necessarily be my physician per se that's in the, in the home with me, but there is a, a nursing professional that's coming out. Um, I'm, I, I find that kind of an interesting element of it because it doesn't necessarily have to be present that, uh, that another provider is is there. It just adds an extra component because in the article that the Mag Journal discussed, the fact that ambulances, for example, now first responders are starting to have uh, tele or, or telemetry, or telephony, and and uh, and visual use to be able to interface with a physician or in the ER while they're actually at the scene and things like that. So, how does that? How do how do we define what a what a requirement is to be able to deliver this kind of care? Whether or not I need a, another provider of some kind there, or whether it's it counts, you know, and is acceptable for me just to be face to face using maybe my handheld device. And how does that? How do we sort through the model of how we get to deliver that kind of care? Whether we can just do it across my computer through a webcam or a mobile device or whether I have to have a nurse sitting there with me to do part of this exam. Right. And your example of the um, ambulance and the stroke um, diagnosis, and as we all know, strokes timing being so critical, that's obviously an area where those types of stroke programs have been very successful. Um, but, you know, this is not all, this concept is really not necessarily a new one for those of you, um, you know, on the line that remember the Jetsons, right? In the home type right, of yeah. visits, it, you know, what's, what's old is new, right? Well, it, it it's is. all, it's all back and that's the perfect example of it. But in answer to your question, it really is the perfect lawyer's answer because it, it depends and it depends on what the state laws are with respect to who has to do what in all the pieces of this puzzle. And the good news and the bad news is there are a lot of them because as a whole, I think there has been a lot of skepticism about the efficacy of telehealth and telemedicine and wanting to ensure that the credentials and qualifications of the persons providing those services are in fact legit because you clearly have a number of companies that are in this space that are not necessarily provider own physician owned or right. nurse owned or anybody who touches you know hands on in yeah. terms of the healthcare. So there's been this huge push to make sure that the industry is appropriately regulated. And as a result, you have state laws that vary from state to state about um, what type of licensure you have to do, uh, have, and who has to hold it, and what that scope of the telehealth services happen to look like. So there's not a lot of consistency across the country in terms of 
of um, state statutes. And there are a number of different areas where it can get you, so to speak. Right. And so when we look at advising companies or advising physicians as to all those different pieces of the puzzle, you really have to work through this huge laundry list mm-hmm. of different issues that come into play. So everything from licensing to credentialing to corporate practice of medicine to can you split fees with non-physician personnel for the delivery of the healthcare services to what Medicaid would provide in terms of reimbursement <laughs> right. for those services, let alone the federal niche of Medicare um, and, and liability, liability insurance, standards of care, the list goes on and on. But that gives you an idea. Well, now we have a few years of the technology being out there. I know that at least at least from, I may be incorrect, but I, uh, I believe that the practice of delivering care this way started heavily in the mental health kind of space where that kind of care is not delivered with things like auscultation where I'm having to listen to your heart and lungs and I'm, I'm not having to palpate pulses and, and do some of those hands-on types of assessments that typically make up almost, almost every exam I've ever been a part of as a patient. They're having to touch me in some form or fashion to assess something. Um, but nowadays, uh, you know, the urgent care visits are being conducted by mobile device using videography. I sprained my ankle or I hurt my ankle. Is it, you know, do I need to go get a cast on it? I, I, I'm curious over that ensuing period of time where it started just a few years ago, really six or seven years ago, maybe a little bit more um, to today. I mean, on that legal side, that's kind of where you live. What is that picture done? I mean, are, are cases coming forward now around the delivery of telemedicine that, you know, are saying, well, somebody should have laid their hands on me in some form or fashion. I mean, how is that impacting the legal, the legal field of things whenever I make my diagnosis by, by phone and by, by video? Yeah, and I don't know that we've seen the impact necessarily from a liability standpoint and a professional liability standpoint. Obviously, as the technology has gotten better, it really has improved what you're able to do. So moving from the store and forward to a derm patient, for example, where you can now via phone or otherwise see 3D, actually, you know, whether there is a raise or an elevation to whatever the patient's showing from a dermatology perspective that makes, you know, things improve, but you still have to look at it from a liability standpoint in terms of what can the person see and also does the technology fail you that's another component to to the piece really from a legal action standpoint what we've seen a lot more focus is on the licensure standpoint right so it got to the point where there was so much inconsistency across the states either they didn't address them or they addressed them in one way or not another in terms of the requirements you know do you have to have a established patient relationship that has been in person physically beforehand mm-hmm. before providing um, telemedicine services does a physician and college Colorado that comes into Georgia via health, they might be sitting in Colorado, but they're providing telehealth services to the Georgia patient. Do they have to be licensed in Georgia? So all of those bugs, so to speak, were being worked through. And finally, what happened was the Federation of State Medical Boards, which is the overarching entity for all the different state boards, adopted a compact a couple of years ago. And that compact was designed to say, okay, here's what we would like to see from the various medical boards if you're considering or adopting or changing 
changing your statutes with respect to licensure. So that was helpful in that it created some consistency. Um, as of the summer, you had nine states that had, you know, signed on to that compact, and then it was pending in 10 additional states. That really is where we've seen most of the legal action and the buzz. And then you see cases like, for example, um, companies challenging what the state medical boards are doing in terms of regulation. And the well-known case is the Teladoc case out of Texas, where Teladoc, a company that's um, a, a company, a non-provider organization, has challenged from an antitrust perspective whether the state of Texas can prevent it coming in providing services to its patients through some of the state um, licensure requirements. So where did it land with regards to that, that question of can I be a physician in Colorado and I am the face and the physician that is on the screen interacting with the patient in Georgia? Where, what, do we, what do we end on? Because in a way, that, that presents an interesting, I don't know if it's a dilemma or not. I came from the space, I spent a few years in locums, for example, locum tenens, um, where you're placing physicians on typically temporary assignments, not always, but, but usually temporary assignments. And the whole notion of cross-state licensure was always a problem because some places were just brutal, Texas being one of them, to get into. Um, and this this is a crack in the matrix, if you will, where now I can physically be here and deliver care over there. I don't even have to go into Georgia, but I'm delivering care in Georgia. So, I mean, where did we, where are we today with, with that whole question about licensure versus, you know, not? Well, it's a great question. And the answer is it's not all that different from a locum <laughs> services um, type of arrangement because the states likewise require the licensure. The theory being we want to protect our citizens and ensure the qualification of the person coming into the state whether it's remotely coming into the state via video means or some sort of other electronic means or physically traveling to provide services at X hospital. So where Georgia has wound up is that you have to have licensure if you are coming into the state to provide um you know, physical medical services via electronic radiographic or other means of telecommunication. You flat okay. out have to have the license. I got you. Yep. We've been talking with legal expert on healthcare and life sciences and healthcare technology, Sidney Welch of Kilpatrick Townsend in Stockton with our monthly series, Medical Association of Georgia, talking about how telemedicine and telehealth is changing the landscape with how healthcare is delivered in our states and some of the dilemmas that kind of come with that, how we have to sort through licensure now. And, and as you're saying, Sydney, that, that as it, if I'm hearing you correctly, that, that today with regards to if I'm going to deliver health remotely via this kind of technology, it's just as if I was going to go someplace on a temporary assignment. I, I need to get licensure in the states where I'm going to be able to provide care. Assuming that's what the state requires, right? right? And Georgia is an example of one that would require you to have licensure in that state. And the other interesting thing that Georgia has done is they've also adopted standards for standards of care from a liability perspective that you were asking about earlier. So in order to come in and meet the minimum standards of care in Georgia, um, the board's regulations require that you have to have the licensure, of course. You have to take a history on the patient. Not a big surprise to anybody. Um, and you have to either personally have seen or examined the patient and then provides care intermittently by such mean. Or you have to provide care 
um, through somebody who's physically here in Georgia, hands-on to the care. So a consult remotely almost would be that other approved um, or is providing services through Georgia has the Georgia Partnership for Telehealth. And so that recognizes certain sit, um, certain centers, if you will, that have a, a clinic or university program that gets set up and designated. So that was designed to provide care from these remote more rural areas where you couldn't get a neurologist to come to town. So so I would go into my local small town hospital and I'm in that hospital but I'm being seen by physician expert in Atlanta. Right. Is what you're saying. Right. And, it, you know, it would be done through a public health nurse or a public health center or uh, the Department of Family Services and Children's Services or law enforcement. One of those government sponsored connections to get you back to the university specialty center. So were you just now saying a moment ago that um, that based on our current rules, that if I'm going to deliver medicine or medical care as a physician to you, Sydney, then I have to, if I'm going to do it remotely by some sort of, you know, videography or mobile device, that kind of technology, that I, I have to have previously seen you in person at some point, or I have to have another person who can lay their hands on you? To the extent. latter, right. So there has to have been some personal connection to the patient first. You, the remote telehealth pr- provider in Colorado, don't have to be the one that does it, but there would have to be somebody licensed in Georgia who's done it establish that relationship with the patient, and then you get brought in via telehealth. Now, do you believe that's going to stay that way, or do you believe that's going to go away? Because one of the companies that I've met recently, the reason why I'm intrigued by that is because the the model was urgent care delivery to a certain extent. It was replacing the the need to go to an urgent care or, if you want to call it a fast track, an emergency room where they basically was an urgent care. But I'm, I've got a respiratory illness. I don't feel well. Um, here are my symptoms or I, I, uh, I fell and I cut myself. Does this need stitches or I sprained my ankle or is it broken? But that model that we talked about, um, didn't have me. I mean, I, I could be a, a user of the, of the application. Bing, I want to talk to a doctor. They come in. We, we, you know, shine the, shine the, the camera on the, affected injury or whatever the case may be, or my tonsils. And they made a diagnosis, and but I wasn't getting hands laid on me by anybody. Well, but you're doing it, and I don't know the specifics of the structure, right? There are all these different workarounds mm. and structures, but it may be done under the auspices of wherever you've checked into to do that original assessment, right, via video cam, may have somebody under contract that is that nexus or that connection who's a licensed practitioner in the state of Georgia. That may be some of the workaround and some of some of the ways that it gets done. Interesting. But you're right. Uh, as we develop more, the question will become, is there more laxity or is there more stringency in terms of how we regulate? And I think until we get consistency and get past the specul- you know, speculative nature, if you will, of telehealth, there'll still be this real desire to make sure that the credentials are what they should be for those persons that are providing those services via telehealth. It can do a lot of good, but it's also an area, as we've seen from our comments about the revenues, that's ripe for revenues and money. Um, And you always have to balance those issues against each other. Something that we haven't gotten into in the previous discussions I've been a part of around the the delivery of health through 
uh, this kind of technology is the reimbursement side of things as it relates to or compared to me going into an office? I mean, is it typically similar fees that we're talking about from a reimbursement perspective or are the the third party payers out there in Medicare, Medicaid, whatever the case may be, are they saying, well, this is done remotely, there was less involvement, so it's technically less acute, so the, the reimbursement for this encounter is less? Well, the third party payers have been much more embracing of the technologies, recognizing the efficiencies and the cost efficiencies, I think, that can be brought to the table. Um, right now, Medicare has very limited um, reimbursement for telehealth services, and they do refer to it as telehealth. That being said, um, AMA, through its CPT guidelines, are currently walking through, what do we do with this beast? How do we open the door mm -hmm. to allow for more reimbursed services, which, of course, is of interest to the physicians and other providers that are rendering the services in that fashion? Do we, um, you know, how do we handle that? Do we create a new category of codes that we then promote um, and get Medicare to sit down and establish. So they are working through that right now. And the answer is, I think we will see rapid change on the reimbursement side, just because to be consistent with the goals that Medicare has set in terms of monetary efficiencies in healthcare, the triple aim, improving efficiencies, coordination of care, et cetera. And given the location of the number of insureds, you have to be able to provide that services, coupled with the shortages of physicians in particular specialties. You know, you, you can hardly find a, a neurologist these days or a urologist, and the wait times are significant. So to the extent that access to care can be improved by this means, I certainly think it will be embraced, and we'll see further developments on that front. There are things that are under consideration right now with the physician fee schedule in particular that talk about waivers for the ACO programs and other developments. So as we go through our annual process with Medicare, we're starting to see that stuff creep in more and more. And when you say waivers, what, what do you mean? Uh, meaning that it would allow for um, the telehealth services to be delivered through the ACO models and receive reimbursement without some of the restrictions that currently exist. And they're very specific in nature. So in your in your opinion, as you've been watching this trend evolve over the last few years, I mean, how would you how would you evaluate the, the temperature, if you will, from the latest perspective, because clearly that's a place that medical association is very much involved, um, as well as just from the the Georgia Medical Board, uh, how how do they how do they view this f here in Georgia? Is it a great thing that we're fired up and we want to empower, or has it been kind of like, well, let's pump the brakes a little bit here? I think I would say cautiously <laughs> optimistic, right? I think there's a desire to improve patient care from everybody's vantage point, but I think it has been um, tentative and cautious approach as it probably should be. Um, but at a certain point, it, right now, federal legislation is outpacing where the state is in some of its um some of its vantage points. So we have seen an explosion of bills on Capitol Hills addressing telehealth in some shape, form, or fashion. Mm -hmm. are, are, are there any in particular that are worthy of note um, for this particular discussion where the Georgia legislature is setting out to create some sort of rules or oversight uh, or stepping into this particular part of our 
arena? Well, I haven't seen it at the state level, but let me give you a couple examples at the federal level that might be of interest to people. So, for example, AARP and the American Academy of Family Practitioners are aiding currently for a bridge to cover wider Medicare reimbursement of telehealth services as the doctors are moving in these change in reimbursement models to a volume based or fee-for-service models to a quote-unquote value-based payment structure with alternative payment models. And so they're asking that restrictions on some of the limitations of the current uh, reimbursement models be lifted. And similarly, the American Telehealth Association or Telemedicine Association is announcing its partnerships with the Academy of Dermatologic Surgery and also the American Academy of Neurology to set forth practice guidelines for teleburn care and telestroke care, which are obviously really important, critical areas. We've been talking with legal expert on the topic of healthcare life sciences and healthcare technology, Sydney Welch, and discussing the delivery of healthcare using tele, uh, telemedicine type you know, technology, mobile devices, computer and phone or combination of those, some of those with a physician um, only on the other end of the line, some of those models with a healthcare provider of some kind, like a nurse in many cases, actually sitting with you doing some part of the exam using uh, connected devices in many cases where the physician on the other end is actually viewing the, the whatever image that is being seen through, say, uh, an otoscope that they would use to look in your ear or your, you know, or examine your eyes, whatever the physician is seeing those. Um, and, and we're kind of learning about how this is evolving in our state in particular and how the federal government has been kind of tackling this particular issue. And, and from, from the perspective of telemedicine in the state of Georgia, are there sets of particular specialties and different, I mean, wh- how does it, how has it been defined so far? Uh, this is what you can do. And this is these, these guys and gals that are providing medicine care, medical care, they can't do it through this kind of technology. This group can, how, where, where's the, yes, you can specialties, you know, being defined right now? Well, I don't know that it's being defined by specialty as much as it is by licensure and licensure function. So it really is defined off of the medical board's statutes and then regulations that go through there that relate to the practice of medicine. So that's how we see things defined in the state of Georgia is under that Medical Practice Act. And then in terms of categories of providers, if you were talking physicians versus nurses versus PAs and all of those different categories of licensed professionals, you then in turn look to what the state licensure talks about in terms of the scope of practice for those licensed individuals and what they can and can't do within the scope of their license. Do we have some measure of idea right now as far as the the extent of participation in this kind of technology from our Georgia healthcare providers or companies that are providing this type of service in in, in the state? I've not seen those. The Department of Community Health may be doing some of that monitoring and some of that studies. Um, you know, it, as you pointed out earlier with some of your examples, there are specialties that lend it themselves more nicely 
than others to it because there is a greater ease or greater comfort that you could provide that level of care through an encounter that is electronic in fashion, right? So dermatology has been one area where it's been helpful. The stroke area has been, so I would say not only in Georgia, but also on the national framework, it really has followed those different uh, models. You mentioned the psychiatry and the psychology. That has been another area that's been extremely popular and very effective. If you think of the Department of Veterans Affairs, right, with all the military folks coming back that have issues that need to be dealt with, that also has been an effective tool and a lot of studies and monies are being poured into really providing and boosting those cares, particularly with their wait times for right. patients getting to a provider. Right. And you think about some in the rural setting and then we talked to the Indian health also has been another area where psychology, telepsychology and telepsychiatry has been a big help because you think of where a number of those reservations are located. They're located in areas that are not accessible or there may be a high hospital that's there, but the hospital's limited in scope of the things that they can provide. You talked about the broken leg, right? You may have somebody, a family practice doctor, usually in those settings, and they don't have the cadre of the orthopedist and orthopedic surgeon, but to stabilize the patient and then get them and then see about getting them out for care as needed. Um, I'm I'm kind of curious as far as I guess the people, that the, the providers that are engaging in the delivery of this care, are doing so, I'm, I'm kind of curious, when are they building in time to be available for that versus my standard in-person practice? I mean, are they, it, it, from a capacity perspective, I'm kind of curious how the the physicians and, and their, their extenders, if you will, are able to accommodate the need to be able to provide my remote care versus my in-office care. And I think that varies. It depends on how immersed or or not immersed they are in the practice. So there are some of them that that's their full-time practice. And usually those physicians either have set up their own companies to provide telehealth services or have contracted with a telehealth company to provide those services. You have those that are exploring it and seeing what the interest is both on their side for their patients and then also externally, you know, how that's being received in their particular specialty. And I think typically those are being done on a block time basis. I'm going to dedicate, you know, one afternoon to providing services through telehealth means and that kind of mechanism as well. Mm -hmm. Or they're providing them, uh, many of them are providing them in the hospital setting or the clinic setting as well, where they're part of a bigger piece of, you know, they're one piece of the bigger puzzle so that the staffing can be done. So they're rotating through and staffing the telehealth program in their specialty for a particular time period such that it's generally not all consuming. Well, obviously, with the Medical Association of Georgia being a part of this particular show, um, many of the the folks are going to check out today's topic are going to be providers. I mean, are there special considerations that if I'm a physician or an extender in the state and I want to try to participate in this sort of model that I've not been doing so up to this point, are there any kind of particular considerations that they need to be aware of, do you think, as they start to explore, do I want to be a telemedicine provider? I think absolutely. They've got to go through kind of the same checklist that we would from a legal perspective. And then they've got the business and other 
concerns that they would have to walk through or those lists. So you start with a simple licensure. If they're in the state, they're likely to be licensed. So that usually is an easy check the box. What type of services, what are going to be the scope of services that they're going to provide via the telehealth mechanism? Who are they going to contract with to be their vendor? And that becomes really important to be their electronic communications because- The platform through which they're going to do it. platform, exactly. Because, and who's assuming the liabilities under that contract? Right. Right. Um, what does their insurance look like for providing this? I was curious this? about that, I w- and I was going to get to that, actually, was to ask you how, from a, I guess, medical liability perspective, does it is it different in some capacity than if I'm delivering care to you face-to-face? Does it increase my liability by, by doing that, or does it mitigate it? Because the platform, I guess, must assume some measure of responsibility in that, the pr- platform provider, if you will, the ZedMed of the, of the world. Um, how, do, right. how does that affect me legally? Well, in Georgia, you would, you know, default to the standard of care, which are different and they're established by the regs in terms of delivery of telehealth services. So rather than what a similarly situated provider under the same circumstances would do, which would be the Georgia case law standard, obviously some of that translates over because you would make the argument that a similarly situated provider would be one providing services via telehealth. But then you have to meet the Georgia statutory regulatory requirements as well. And then layered on top of that, not only how that liability looks from a regular malpractice action or case, you also have to think about, does my insurance cover this? What does my policy say about coverage? Do I have to get a rider to perform the telehealth services? Can I provide it through my existing entity? Would I be better off separating my business that's my normal you know, day-to-day, office-based, hands-on type services. Almost like moonlighting, if you will. Yes. I'm employed by my practice, but then I moonlight with telemedicine company XYZ. Exactly. Are you better served by having a separate company set up and insulated for that purpose for liability reasons? And, of course, if you're an employee of somebody and you're doing that as moonlighting, what does your employment agreement say? <laughs> right? Yeah. So. Yeah, so there could be competition uh, issues, if you will, yes. non-compete type things that Restrictive you have to covenants, be yes. exploring while you're looking at this as well. What about if, as it relates to requirements for follow-up after I've been seen in this form or fashion as, the, you know, do I have to be the person that sees them in some sort of follow-up? You know, maybe it's one of those examples that we talked about that's a little bit more episodic in nature that the, to use the pediatric example that we talked about earlier, where that's usually going to be kind of an urgent care type visit. It's not my ongoing follow-up annually. I mean, how do it, are there different requirements around the follow-up piece of that? Do I have to go back and be followed up on by that same provider that I dealt with through that through that platform, or do I just need to be seen by somebody providing providing care from that platform? in some form or fashion. Do you follow me? I do. And, and I think part of the answer to that question is how are you holding yourself out in terms of the services that you're providing, right? Are you looking to be that one-off provider that's the urgent care, in which case most of those models are set up so that the information from that particular visit goes to the primary care physician, whether pediatrician or internist for that regular patient, which does two things. It establishes that as a one-off type of visit, and it also insulates for liability. So it goes, the information goes back to the receiving end, the primary care um, so that that encounter and therefore that relationship is limited. 
Right. How are we handling the the transmission of this information? Because in, 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 when we talk about telemedicine, I mean, we don't just have personal information. We've got images going back and forth as well through the through the ethos, you know, sometimes wirelessly. Um, so how are we handling the, the, the whole confidentiality side of things from a requirements and regulatory perspective? It would be no different than the HIPAA requirements and the state law privacy requirements that exist as if it were an office visit. So you have two, two areas of concern, obviously meeting the privacy standards, getting the consent uh, for release of information to the extent that that needs to be there, or is it continuing for purposes of treatment? And then you also have the bigger issue than you would in just a physical office setting, perhaps, of the electronic transmission of the information and the security standards. And of course, we all know from reading the headlines on any particular paper or watching the news how much those security breaches are prevalent. And so, again, looking at that contract with whomever is providing those services to you to make sure that they're structured to meet the security requirements of HIPAA's privacy rules, um, and then who's indemnifying whom in the event. <laughs> that there's a breach, right? Yeah, because there's a, there's going to be an element in many cases, the of uh, of a you know the the patient's end is going to be somewhat out of my control in terms of how secure is their device and that kind of thing. All I can control is my end of things. I just thought it was kind of an interesting kind of challenge to have to deal with controlling who can tap into that, you know, if somebody's trying to do something nefarious. Well, and when you have access to that gateway electronically, if you're talking about a remote patient-based site that's the other end as opposed to mm -hmm. a facility to right. a facility or provider to provider, you absolutely have those issues, which is why that companies engaging in that type of remote monitoring services have what we call click-wrap agreements or click-through agreements where before the patient can even access the service, they have to agree to all sorts of terms with respect to all, <laughs> they, of, all they of those things. They don't bother to read. They just click in. That, that's right. <laughs> um, but there, you know, there's case law talking about, you know, what opportunities you have to give the beneficiary, the utilizer of those services. Is the scroll through enough, right? Gotcha. Um, particularly since one might argue that there's a heightened standard in the delivery of healthcare services. You know, the other issue, too, is uh, we've seen this in psychology and psychiatric services as well, is when you get a minor that would be accessing those records um, that way or that service that way, then there's a whole host of Internet-based laws that apply to minors and making sure that they have the age to consent to those types of things, too. So you open the door, I guess is what I'm saying, to a whole host of Internet laws as well. <laughs> so it doesn't just stop with your more traditional healthcare laws. One of the things that the article from the Medical, Medical Association of Georgia's journal that talked about telehealth uh, mentioned is the Georgia Partnership for Telehealth. Talk about what exactly that is, what they're trying to do, and how they're facilitating this arena in the delivery of healthcare. Well, the Georgia Partnership for Telehealth is really looking at setting up and facilitating quality care and specialty care among the rural areas versus academic to academic medical centers. So kind of making that connection or facilitating those links. So sort of kind of like the hub of a wheel, if you will, like where, in the example that we talked about earlier where I may be out in rural Georgia, I go to that small local hospital and I'm interfacing with, a, as you mentioned, an academic 
physician right. specialist somewhere in like an Atlanta. Is that what we're talking about? It's establishing that sort of place you can go that's that's not necessarily from your home, but it's still remote to where the specialist is. That, that's right. So one example would be, let's say, uh, a woman in South Georgia, um, teeny tiny town, may not even have a hospital, goes and sees her regular family practitioner she's expecting, and some sort of anomaly is expect is identified, right, or potential anomaly, then that hookup or that connection where the patient can receive the specialty care out of Emory or wherever that uh, specialty care link-up may be to not have to get in the car and drive three hours and stay out of town and receive the prenatal care care um, that she needs in order to deal with whatever the anomaly may be. It would be a perfect example of a situation where that's been very effective. Now, I know that the Georgia Partnership for Telehealth is a not-for-profit, but is it is it a is it a public-private kind of partnership? Is it public? What's the, where is it? Where does it live? Well, and I'm not as well-versed as somebody like Donald would probably be on, on that particular issue, but my understanding was that it started out as, pro- as government-sponsored and then it's a public-private type of enterprise. And the, so, the big goal of that organization then is to kind of what you were talking about to address that paucity of physicians and particularly specialists that the patients in the far-flung regions of the state that don't have a nearby a tertiary hospital that they can go to so that they can have these kind of regional centers, if you will, where there's that technology that's secure, that's available, where they can get that remote access and that's, save them a trip from that might be hours long. Right. That's absolutely how it started out. Um, and with all the trending in telehealth, then the question is, does it start to proliferate into the urban areas as well. So we may be Atlanta-based. You may have a child who has a deficit or whatever in CHOP, uh, Children's Healthcare of uh, Philadelphia, may be the place Mm -hmm. for that particular specialty. So you might link up that way. So it becomes then, you know, a national experience accessing, you know, to Sloan Kettering or accessing to MD Anderson or those types of things. So they're all different themes and variations on the usages for this. But So we just a few minutes left already. I I always marvel at how fast our time goes. But um, with a few minutes left, I mean, where do you see where do you see this going? I think it's not an end game. I think that's the important thing to remember. I think it's not the end all be all, but just one piece of the particular puzzle of the explosion of usage of technology in healthcare today. So I don't think it's the end all be all, but it's just a stepping stone. So I think we will see it change, morph, become incorporated in bigger and different models of the delivery of of healthcare that are patient and physician centric. So it's just one piece of that puzzle. Mm -hmm. Have any final thoughts that we need to get out there and cover before we let you get back to your practice? I I think it's interesting to see all of the marvelous things that are being done with telehealth. And so those that approach it with some degree of skepticism, I would encourage them to take a closer look and see whether it is, in fact, something that could be done to their advantage, particularly the licensed professionals, where they, like many of the things, have control over or input into sustaining that quality the way that they would want to see it sustained for their patients. In other words, use your voice, shape it, uh, you know, all the good things that the Medical Association of Georgia does. Don't be on the sidelines wishing it weren't there, but looking at how it can be optimized to improve quality of care for patients.
Now, are there places that that the layperson in the community might be able to go to find out more information? I mean, are the hospitals starting to advertise? Because I don't cruise their websites all that often. But I mean, are they advertising this type of service? Where can I find out what's available to me that I might be able to access, whether I'm listening from the far far areas out in in the state that don't have a hospital nearby, maybe I can find access to that. Is there some good information resources that they yeah, can Yeah, I think the partnership for telehealth would be a great one for starting that um, journey. And then I think that the big academic medical centers um, and the specialty hospitals, children's healthcare here in Atlanta, and then through the American Telemedicine Association and other associations that have those resources and those hookups, absolutely. Those are some great resources as a first place to start. Well, if someone is listening and they want to have access to your legal expertise in the arena of healthcare life sciences and health technology, how do they get information about you? Well, I appreciate that. And so I have an email address that's swelch, W-E-L-C-H, at kilpatricktownsend.com. And that's a great way to, to reach or get in touch. And if you're not familiar with the Medical Association of Georgia, it's mag.org, M-A-G. Dot org. They're at mag1849 on Twitter. If you have been checking us out by podcast today and you've not done so already, go to the upper left-hand corner of the show page. You'll see the Apple logo there. That'll take you to the iTunes store to the Top Docs Radio Show podcast. Make sure you subscribe to us so that you can get the weekly down uh, weekly episode downloaded straight to your device. You can check it out on your way to work, walking the dog, whatever the case may be, pedaling on the treadmill. And uh, you can keep up with all these cool people that we're introducing you to on a weekly basis to the folks over at Medical Association of Georgia. It's been a pleasure having you all as partners to the show, sharing this kind of information and, and uh, uh, interacting with the, the various uh, physicians around the state through this channel. And uh, Sydney, I really appreciate you taking some time out of your day to come by and share the legal perspective uh, about what is obviously one of those fast emerging and, and evolving areas in, in the delivery of, of healthcare around our state. So it's pretty cool talking to you. Thank you, CW. I enjoyed it mightily. Thanks. Uh, all right. Well, uh, for all the folks out there that made us a part of their day today, we want to say thank you very much. If you can, turn around and share this information. You might just put it in the hands of somebody that you can help and uh, make an appointment to see us all same time, same place next week. We'll see you then. 